Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. So this episode is about therapy. Psychotherapy, or any kind of counseling for mental health issues, is supposed to offer a safe, non-judgmental space for patients to talk about anything at all, especially their darkest or most confusing thoughts or emotions. But I have heard a lot of people talking lately about being afraid to bring certain things into the therapy room, especially issues around politics and identity, for fear of being judged or even admonished by their therapist, even called racist or sexist by their therapist. I have also heard people say that they had a therapist who was poised to frame all of their issues as stemming from things like racism or sexism. In other words, it's not your mother's fault, it's systemic discrimination. I have also heard therapists. I talk to people a lot about therapy, I guess. I've heard therapists who don't practice that way talk about their fears of being censured by peers or colleagues in the profession for not being progressive enough. Now, this sounds kind of unbelievable, and 10 or 15 years ago it might have been, but our current landscape has made these dynamics all too real, which is why my guest, clinical psychologist Dr. Andrew Hartz, founded the Open Therapy Institute. In this conversation, he'll tell us what that is and also explain how and when things started to change. We talk about what kinds of people become therapists, how unchecked empathy that's my phrase, not his, can lead to bad therapy, and how he feels about sessions conducted on Zoom, as well as new models like BetterHelp. Just so you know, there is no bonus portion of this episode, so if you are a paying subscriber on the Substack, you get a break this week, or I get a break. If you are a founding member, I am hereby announcing that I'll be hosting a Zoom hangout on Sunday, October 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I do these every few months and they're a lot of fun. So please do become a member at that level. If you are not already, you go to megandom.substack.com. And with that, here is my conversation with Dr. Andrew Hartz. Andrew Hartz, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thanks for having me. You are a practicing clinical psychologist. You're also the founder of something called the Open Therapy Institute which I want to talk about as well as your practice. But um, I'm actually going to start with telling you about something that is central to the reason that I asked you here. As my listeners know, probably, uh, since I've been writing about culture war issues and even more so since starting this podcast, I hear from a lot of people who are caught in the ideological crosshairs. This led me to start a women's community, actually, devoted to viewpoint diversity. We have retreats all over the country. We have an online community. It's a private community. We never reveal the identities of anyone who comes on a retreat or who joins us online. Most people wouldn't care if we did. But I can tell you that the profession that by far represents the highest number of people who do not want it to be known that they have anything to do with our group is therapists. <laughs> they are terrified of uh, having it get out to their patients or their colleagues that their views are anything but boilerplate progressive. And they come from all over the country. These are not just people in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York. They're all over. So my first question to you is very simple. Why? Yeah, it's a really it's a really great question. Um, 
Okay, actually, I have some thoughts about this. One of them is so much of therapy for so long was about being open to whatever people are feeling. Like if you if you go back to Freud and he's you know, essays on free association, you know, the patient's supposed to free associate and kind of say whatever pops in their mind without censorship. And Freud says, the stuff that you feel like you shouldn't say because you don't want to say it, or it feels irrelevant, or, you know, whatever, that's the stuff that you want to be most sure to say in therapy. So the whole method is all about saying the things that you would normally self-censor. That's, that's how talk therapy started you know, over a hundred years ago. So it's weird now to have the mental health profession become such a censorship culture and become so ideologically one-sided. And people, I think, feel unable to talk about what they're feeling. And therapists who historically have been most attracted to like unfiltered free flow of thoughts and feelings, you know, are probably more sensitive to how impactful it can be to not be able to do that even even in therapy you know and even in uh, professional contexts people feel like they can't really say what they think and feel and when did you start noticing this happening how long have you been in practice so i started my phd in 2013 and at that time i didn't notice personally, any politicization in the field. Politics didn't come up in training very often at that time. They didn't come into the therapy room very often either. I think a patient who wanted to talk about the news every day, that would have been seen as weird. <laughs> that would be something to work on. I, I might yeah, it's that. like, why, why are you here to tell me about the news? You know, But I'd say 2014, 2015, is when I started to see changes happening. And then in 2016, politics became a real focus of the field. And then that just kept escalating every year through the end of my degree uh, to the point where by the t- my last year of training, I would have one a week, even more trainings on political issues, especially identity politics stuff. And those trainings had a really different character than the other types of trainings, where in a lot of discussions that therapists have, they're like open about a wide range of thoughts and feelings. Therapists tend to pride themselves on their ability to have dialogue about different difficult issues. But the, but the ones that were identity politics focused, you got the sense very quick that dialogue was not welcome. There was an idea that you had to adhere to unquestioningly. And any challenging or questioning or deviation from that was going to pose severe social and professional risks. And you could see in those conversations, you know, by the end, the way that people are clearly stifled, clearly inhibited, looking at their shoes, agreeing passionately with everything. Nobody ever says anything (laughs) contrary, that it was just a very weird, I think, unhealthy group dynamic that was present. They they just had a very different character. And that that character was just seeping into more and more of every conversation in every meeting in the field. So it just became 
very, very politicized in, in a relatively short period of time. Now you're talking about these meetings. Are you are these meetings like this is training within your psychoanalytic institute? Because I, I think um, it might be helpful to explain how therapists get trained. Because I think sometimes right. people have the perception, and it might not be wrong all the time that like some you can sort of just hang out a shingle and be a therapist or get a get a be a a licensed social clinical social worker, something like that. I, not that that's hanging out a shingle, but maybe you right. can explain what kind of training you were getting and what is the education course for a therapist generally. Well, I'm a psychologist and psychologists get a doctorate. I, right. I have a PhD. That program usually takes somewhere between five and eight years, depending on what your program is like. And then there's also master's level clinicians who might get a two or three year degree, sometimes even a one year degree. And it varies by state. And then you have to pass an exam and get a certain number of hours. You're right to say that there's a huge variety in the different types of training people get. They get trained in different types of therapy, different types of populations, the quality of the instruction and supervision they get varies really wildly. I uh, so there it is like an apples to oranges thing where you you can have two psychologists who both have a PhD in clinical psychology and they just learned totally different ways to do therapy with totally different types of people. For me, you know, I don't want to name specific institutes here, but like I I did train at a psychoanalytic institute in New York for a couple of years, and I trained at. Uh, three different hospitals in in New York, and they're you know really really major um, hospital systems in New York. And uh, on those different training placements, usually like I had one going each year. About sometimes I was at multiple sites, but for the most part, that's that's how it works. And I'd have a variety of different trainings, like how to do a neuropsychological assessment, therapy with kids, therapy with adults, couples, family. You have some lectures. You see patients, you'll do inpatient psychiatric care. There's just a wide variety of things, groups. And so that's what it looks like. And you're there, you're there at maybe a hospital for a year, and then uh, and then you go to a different one. Or you're at a university clinic or an analytic institute or something like that for a year or two, and then you go somewhere else. And, th- and that's what most of my my peers' training looks like as well. Okay. So you were seeing patients in an inpatient setting. Sounds like uh, for uh, well, the hospital. Most hospitals do outpatient psychotherapy and inpatient. So at at every hospital, I did some outpatient psychotherapy, probably mostly outpatient psychotherapy. But I I did a lot of inpatient rotations too. The, the, okay. You, yeah. And what was the patient population like? Um, it varied. I mean, in New York, at the public hospitals, it's a lot of. Medicaid, Medicare, low-income, immigrants, uh, but people with severe mental illness, people with personality disorders, and then it kind of ranges to, at some clinics and hospitals, even higher-functioning, more well-off people. But I think most of my training was probably in much more difficult cases with people with multiple diagnoses and um, more severe diagnoses. Okay. So how was identity politics coming up in the context of this kind of population? Like you would come into supervision yeah. um, and also maybe you want to explain what, what supervision is and, and 
you know, re- present your cases and how would your supervisors respond? Yeah. So supervision is like, there's usually two types of supervision that most trainees will get. One is individual supervision. You'll meet with a licensed therapist uh, for like 45 minutes once a week. And you'll review your cases one by one, talk about important clinical issues, and get their advice and feedback about how to handle them. They'll review your notes and your paperwork and make sure it's, it's up to par. And then there's a group supervision where, you know, a group of trainees, you know, somewhere four to eight trainees will be in a room together, maybe for a couple hours even, with a licensed uh, therapist who will talk them through broader, more general clinical issues, and maybe people will rotate presenting cases or talking about difficult issues. So that's what supervision refers to. I think (laughs) there was one clinic that I was working in where they seemed to make the formulation of the patient entirely based on their demographics. So if I went in, and this is towards the end of my training, but if uh, somebody said, well, I have a patient, she's upper middle class and white, and she has anxiety, they would say, well, this is, she's anxious because she's privileged and her issue is white privilege. (laughs) And then you'd say, and then they'd be, well, she's, this is somebody who's lower income and she's black or she's an immigrant. And then they'd say, well, this is obviously a result of systemic racism and she needs to connect to her anger about racism and use it to motivate her activism. I mean, wait, this was really happening. Sorry, hang on. This was really, and what year? I don't want to say, you know, my, I don't want to say just so where we it get was. like a, not, not, not where it was, but what year, like, I just want to get a sense of the political and cultural climate. It so was during was... the Trump presidency. Okay. Okay. So, okay. And, and these were people in a, in a supervising role and, and the other trainees were just nodding along with this and saying like, I mean, oh, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for illuminating me. There was clear, this is my assessment of the group dynamic. There was clearly a ring leader who was a black woman who was incredibly aggressive and she really intimidated everybody. And even the head of the clinic, who was not her, was scared of her because she would just go for the jugular vein every time. And then, but she had a number of like devoted followers who were who had drunk the Kool-Aid. Maybe there was, you know, a couple dozen people in this, in this particular facility. And, you know, and the couple, so there were a couple people who would really rally behind this and agree. And then there was a lot of lukewarm people. And then some people who were seemed to, you know, were looking at their shoes, you know, and they were scared, you know, you want to, you don't want to like not, you know, you spend so much money and so much time getting your PhD. You don't want to blow it up. Right. In your last couple of years, you just got to get through it. And I think there were plenty of people there who recognized that this is like a damaging way to think about people. But it's not like, you know, this way of thinking, it's not like unheard of. If you, if you look at like increasing papers in the field and what's presented at conferences, you can see this way of thinking manifesting oh yeah I, and so it's like it's actually like in print 
<laughs> it's oh, yes. not like, yeah. <laughs> I, I've had Helen Pluckrose uh, okay, on, okay. on this show. Yeah, no, yeah, my listeners are very familiar. But okay, so the woman who was having this approach, and I don't mean to, we're not going to dwell on this particular yeah. setting, but do you feel like 10 years earlier she would have had that approach? Like how recent did it feel? Well, I can't say that for sure. It just seems like it would have felt, I just didn't see it at the beginning of my training. And I, I had this sense that environments were trying to be open. They were liberal. And if you were like, racism is playing a role here or something, people were like, oh, sure, I should be like attuned to that. Or like, um, you know, people, it's, it wasn't like it was, there was no politics or no identity politics at all. But I just don't the amount of aggression and intimidation and the like way in which it shapes every case. Like when, when you present a case, people probably don't know this who aren't in the field, but when you're at like a hospital or a clinic and you're going to present on one of your patients, the first thing you say, you, you have a first sentence for how you present a case. This is, this is not new, but you'd say like, you know, (laughs) my patient is a, 38-year-old white male. I mean, maybe in older days they would have just said male, but now it'll be my patient is a 38-year-old cisgender heterosexual white male who is presenting to therapy to treat depression. That that formulation of that sentence is the way you start your presentation. So, but it's it's it kind of there's that sentence has gotten longer and the, I think over the past 10 years where it's more identity categories are included like immigrant woman of color cisgender heterosexual like it's become <sighs> mm-hmm. and then and and it's also become the place where the clinical thinking is entirely focused and it seems like the other factors of the story about like their family history and their relationship history and their thoughts and feelings and stuff it's almost like it takes not every time, but I just saw a lot of case presentations where it seemed like they were just entirely focused on the first part of that sentence. Okay. So really the upshot here is that psychologists and other clinicians are being trained to to take this approach. Um, and obviously that changes the dynamic in people's therapy. So so what happened when you when you finished your training and you know went out and were in clinical practice all the time? Were you seeing the results of this kind of dynamic come up with your, with the people you were working with? Um, like, um, I mean, were they coming in and saying like, Oh my gosh, um, the last therapist I went to, I felt like I couldn't say anything or we got into it. I I mean, I have heard stories um, of people saying like, I I felt like I, you know, my therapist yelled at me. I mean, it's astonishing. Yeah. 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 That stuff is happening. I don't want to overstate it. I think especially for, I, if you're in solo private practice, I think the incentives against treating your patients in that type of aggressive way are pretty strong because this is your income source. Um, if you have a tenured position somewhere or you're entrenched at a clinic or a hospital where it's going to be hard to get rid of you, you kind of have a captive population, there's more of a temptation to abuse your power. So I think it depends on, on where the person is. I have had patients come in saying like, oh, okay, like I have a heterodox, you know, I have heterodox thinking about gender. Is that okay to talk about here? And, um, or something like that or masculinity or, and, and so it, it comes up there. 
I think my concern about clinical care right now is, yes, I think there are increasingly really atrocious things that are happening, like I just described. My bigger concern is that there are huge populations that are just being chronically overlooked and that they're not really being understood or supported. And there's very little literature about them. There are not therapists that are advertising a specialty in working with them or skill in working with them. And if they, if they just grab a random therapist, there's a good chance that they will be mis- misunderstood. And I think this is basically anybody with a heterodox opinion on anything where that feels relevant to their therapy, which is a lot of people. So if I'm at work and I have to go to lots of trainings that I feel like are hateful or I feel like I can't say who I, what, what I feel or I feel isolated because of it, you know, and, and this is a, a difficult issue for me and I want to find a therapist who would be helpful, there's, no one, <laughs> there's almost no one who lists themselves as working well on that issue. And there's not a ton of literature about it. There aren't a lot of case studies about it. There aren't a lot of treatment recommendations about it. And if you just find a random therapist on the online, what are the chances that, you know, there's a small chance that they would be openly hostile to you or not even want to see you or avoid the issue or pathologize it. But even if they don't do that stuff, are they really going to be able, like, are they going to be helpful? Are they going to have anything thoughtful to say? Are they going to understand the experience and actively be supportive? So I think that's more my concern is that the clinical competency with a range of populations is just not there because there's, as the field is getting systematically politicized, there are all these groups that are being overlooked and therapists are uncomfortable working with them unsure how to work with them. They avoid the issues. And it's like, I, I don't want to, you know, I think there are a lot of people who, a lot of therapists who might think, well, I've never kicked a patient out of therapy because of their politics. So therefore I'm doing an A plus job, you know, and, and it's like, it's actually, it's bigger than that. And um, my guess is actually that a lot of people who are isolated or antagonized at work or, or dealing with these censorship issues or have been fired or disciplined or they're, you know, things like that because their views, a lot of those people aren't even necessarily thinking about therapy as a place to like figure out what to no, do. No, they're running to, to, to Reddit. I mean, yeah. then you get, you, then you end up with this whole kind of population that's very angry and I mean, rightfully so often. And, but there, there's Stuck. all kinds of, there's all kinds of corners of the internet that will, you know, that you can sort of run to for, for shelter, but then it ends up just perpetuating your to, bitterness. To, but to actually have like a place to like put together what's happening in your own context and get your head screwed on straight about it, think about what your options are for how you respond in a way that feels right for you, you know, get a vocabulary to kind of start to understand some of the interpersonal dynamics and and your experience of them. I mean, there's a lot of things that could be really helpful for them about getting support, but there's nowhere to go for support. And I think that's my biggest concern is that there's just a ton of people who are really struck, really stuck, really stifled, really struggling, and there's no supports for them. Right. So that's, I'm assuming, why you started the Open Therapy Institute. What's the concept there? 
That's the concept. <laughs> the concept <laughs> is that there's uh, a t- there are a lot of different types of overlooked populations that have almost so- some of these populations have virtually no clinical literature on them, no trainings on them available anywhere for therapists, uh, no services, no clinics, no specializations. This could be obviously people who are canceled in one way or another, people who are isolated and self-censoring, um, but also like people who are struggling with masculinity and like want an authentic sense of masculinity that feels right to them. And, but they don't want to get divorced <laughs> or they don't want to just, or they're struggling or they've dealt with anti-white hatred in its variety of forms. There's, men who have been falsely accused of sexual assault. And there's one one psychologist who talked about an issue of like abortion regret and like women who have gotten abortions and regret doing that. And it's just like, so a lot of these issues they have, there's, you, you know, there's firearms issues, the way that firearms are often pathologized in an unconstructive way in mental health. There's just lots of issues where there's virtually no literature. There's very few to no trainings. There's no resources for people. So you're talking about normal people. It sounds like what you're describing is like basically most people outside of major urban areas. You need a lot of people inside of major urban areas too. That too. Yeah. 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 It's so, yeah. yeah. Anybody with one one heterodox belief is going to struggle to find a therapist who's going to get it. And and a lot of these people, if they do go to therapy for one reason or another, I think the mistrust of the field is very high. But if they do manage to go to a therapist for some uh, something, the chance that they're going to self-censor really important values and experiences is very high. And the chance that the therapist is going to be totally oblivious to this and not really foster openness in an active way is also very high. So how is the Open Therapy Institute structured? Do you have therapists that get training through you? Do you have like a roster of therapists? Like how is it, what are you offering? Yeah, we, we're focused on two things, which are, are therapy and workshops. The main focus initially is that we, people who contact us, we will connect to a therapist in our network who we've interviewed. and we're trying to develop like a skilled professional community of talented people who get it and want to work on these issues. So that's one side is the psychotherapy side. The other side are trainings. You know, we're, we're, we do want to offer workshops for the general public at some point where people can like learn general skills about these issues, but we're going to focus first on um, continuing ed for therapists, just teaching therapists about some of these issues starting to ask questions, starting to make recommendations about how therapists can treat some of these overlooked populations um, and and some of these overlooked issues um, in the field. And are you um, seeing like particular demographics with respect to the therapists themselves? Do they tend to be over a certain age? Do they tend to be in certain areas of the country? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think we have a pretty good spread of people in terms of age and even race and religion and geographical location right now, 
it would would, maybe that's surprising but like i i would have guessed like what you're saying like i would i think i would have guessed that it would have been people that are older and it's less likely to be millennials you know i don't think that's been entirely true uh i maybe would have guessed that it would have been more men i i I think it's probably much more women uh well, there are more women therapists, aren't there? There are more women therapists, so that, so maybe if you control for that or something, it, it, yeah. it does have a slight male. Spe- I don't know, but I think it's actually it's right now it's a it's a pretty diverse group, and it's a diverse group even politically. Like we we have we we obviously there are some conservatives and Republicans involved, but there are plenty of liberals and Democrats involved, and libertarians and moderates, and so it's a, it's a pretty interesting spread. We're going to pause here for a brief message. Hi, it's Megan. I hope you're enjoying this conversation, and I promise I'll get right back to it. But you may have noticed that there's something missing in this podcast. Ads. I don't run them. I don't do host reads, and I decided a long time ago that I will not run programmatic ads. They're simply too disruptive. Not our style around here. But that means that the only support I get for this podcast comes from paying subscribers. This thing is entirely my own. It's not affiliated with any organization or secret cabal of funders. I do it because I love it, and I'm committed to bringing you candid, respectful, surprising conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. That's why I'm asking you to consider becoming a paying subscriber to this podcast's Substack page, which you can find at megandom.substack.com. For as little as $7 a month, you can get bonus content nearly every week, access to my new writing, the chance to participate in comments, and a lot more. If you join at the founding members level, you can meet me almost every month for a listener Zoom hangout, where we talk about the show and discuss how to pronounce my last name. To do that, go to megandom or megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M. And join us. It helps me out tremendously. So thank you. And now back to the interview. The issue is competency. And I think that the, the concern, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would want to see a conservative therapist or like a, or I want to find a therapist who shares all of my views on things. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm, but I am looking for somebody who's open and could be, have something helpful to say about the issues that I'm actually dealing with. Yeah. That matters to me. And somebody who's, you know, and not open in a sense of like, okay, well, they're not attacking me, but they're just staring at me blankly. You know, <laughs> that's not, that's not really openness in my opinion, but somebody who actually can see how much the issues that I'm really struggling with matter to me and can help me talk about them. And a lot of those for me, you know, personally, like do have to do with masculinity, gender, race, religion, those are important issues for me. And it's like, it's unimaginable to me that I could have an effective therapy where I avoid talking about all of those issues. And it, and also just like, I don't want somebody who's just going to like put up with me talking about those issues. And then, you know, <laughs> and that's it. Like, it's like, it's somebody who actually can see that and, or, and not somebody who's going to either simplistically pathologize them either, but like, actually can respond to them in a therapeutic way. And my guess is that my guess that's what is that that's what most people want. Most liberals want that. I would guess most 
centrists and moderates want that and most conservatives want that too. It's not like, it's not realistic to have your therapist agree with you on every issue. Like your therapist can't agree with all their patients <laughs> yeah. on every issue. You have to pay more and it's for not that. the point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter. It's just like, you have to be able to like see, think empathically and clinically in an engaged way that's respectful towards this, the range of experiences. And a lot of people are having, it's so sad how many people are having really, really awful experiences and feel like there's nowhere they can go to get support. And there really isn't. Yeah. Well, again, they go online I and mean, they find yeah, these, yeah, these, yeah. these sort of spaces. Well, can you give examples of issues that people have come in with either to you or other therapists in the Open Therapy Institute? Um, yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, I think it's, it's an, it's a basically, uh, the list is like almost infinite. I mean, it's somebody who can't get a job because they don't want to get the vaccine. It could be somebody who experienced, uh, anti-white bullying through a lot of their childhood. And then, you know, I mean, that's an interesting experience too, because I think that's one that's like systematically overlooked. And, you know, it's, it's crazy to think about, especially like white students who go to majority non-white schools where a lot of the anti-white bullying can be pretty entrenched and obvious and Mm -hmm. pretty overlooked. And, and then, you know, you get bullied on the playground or whatever, and then you go to class and you're taught how you're privileged and you have to apologize to your bullies for your race or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like a, and and you just think like, what are these people, like you either, in that context, you either like fully internalize it and despise yourself and want to be something else, or you rebel against it and like become a white supremacist or something like it's like it's very hard to like especially for a kid to like respond to that situation in a really mature way especially when there's no outlet for you to talk through and process your feelings about those experiences i I just think it's like it's it's so bottomless the number of issues that, that that people have but especially especially maybe people when something's happening with their kids is a big one or there's like family and couples issues, stuff at work, like especially as workplaces be- become really politicized and there's really clear signals sent that this is the ideology that you have to be behind and disagree with it or question it at your peril. You know, that's a, that even that can really goad, that can really wear on people to be in that environment every day. And you, you know, you go from having been somebody who loved your work and loved your colleagues and couldn't wait to show up to just being burnt out and hating and wanting to retire at, you know, 35 or 45. And, and it's just like, it's, it's crazy how, how poisonous that can make a space and make someone's life. Um, I want to ask you what kinds of people tend to go into psychology, clinical practice clinical social work, that kind of thing. Because this this comes up a lot on this podcast. I talk a lot about gender, the new gender movements. I've had people on here talking about issues with children and gender, youth medicine, transition, that kind of thing. And it seems like the people who go into therapy, especially around gender issues, just tend to be a certain kind of not even like necessary political leaning, although that too, but a certain personality type or temperament, like they're just very resistant to 
confrontation, strangely, or they're just, hmm. um, I mean, Sasha Ayad put it this way, and I think she, this was, you know, Sasha Ayad and Stella O'Malley do the Gender a Wider Lens podcast, which is phenomenal, I think. It's the best gender podcast out there. You know, and Sasha has said, you know, they, they tend to be these kind of real, like hyper empathetic people, you know, sort of bleeding hearts. And and there might be even, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, she didn't say it this way, but it seems like there's just a kind of baseline resistance to critical thinking or almost fear of critical thinking in the population of people who go into this field. And I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like I definitely had peers going through my training who I think were almost all women and they were attract. They thought the job of the therapist is just to like sit there and be nice. Mm -hmm. And they really thought that was the job. It's like, you're there, they come in, they have a space, you're nice to them. You like say nice things to them and that's your job. And it's like, and it, maybe there's like more of a sophisticated rationale around that about like attachment theory or empathy or what they think about that. But it, it seemed like that was a big part of how they practiced and how they conceptualized what they did. I think male therapists, and this goes back even like to when the field was more male, you know, at, at the beginning when it was like mostly men and where it's like, no, the therapist's job is like interpretation. And like you make interpretations and you're formulating, it's like a totally different. It's like I'm not sure that's any better. I don't know yeah, <laughs> how they're thinking like, about it's it. Like it's, you're, yes. you're formulating what's happening and making interpretations. Right. Yeah, but it's like, but I, I think <laughs> it's so, it's you're like, mansplaining back to the, to the client <laughs> what they just said. Exactly. <laughs> But, um, but you kind of like, so I don't know that the, I don't know that I think that there's like one type. I know too many therapists that are like too different to like say that there's like one, one type of person in the field. I think there's just like lots of, real, there, there are different, re, there's, there probably are some commonalities if we like broke it down, but like, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a, a, a range. The field has become more feminized. And, well, yes. Uh, I yeah. mean, what percentage of therapists are women at, at this point? Because it's probably it like seems, eighty. It's probably like eighty. Yeah. So that and and is that like in the last twenty years, thirty years more? <sighs> I don't know. I don't. I don't have the data offhand. And it's like, and it is like, you know, this is like another thing. But it's like, if you look at child therapists, it's even more female. Of the male therapists, what percentage are gay? Probably half. It's like, it's like the, the percentage that are like, I am definitely in the minority as like a heterosexual, you know, male therapist. But I guess of the heterosexual male therapists, like what percentage are Jewish? It's like, it's, they're mostly <laughs> Jewish. So it's right. like, I, it's like, it's, there is like this kind of like, okay, like cis, hetero, non-Jewish male therapists are like just this tiny, it's, it's crazy how small of a percentage there. Yeah. And so like, again, this is something that comes up here. And then uh, also on my other podcast that I do with, with Sarah Hader. I mean, we talk often about the sort of the feminization of the culture and the way that like this kind of feelings based, very sort of almost like pathological empathy is how I would put it. I just thought of that right now, but I'll have to think about that more. But like there, there is this kind of baseline 
you know, feelings are more important than reality. Like this, this sort of permeates so much of the public discourse, but also private interactions that we have with people who are supposed to be in the, in the helping professions. And I wonder if there is a kind of like degree to which a, a female sensibility has hijacked this process. And, and I'm, I'm saying that you're not saying that. I know it'd be hard for you to say, but you can just nod. I know this is audio yeah. only, but you can nod along. Um, it's hard to like, see, I always heard empathy in my training was like, it was about accurate empathy in the sense that you're thinking, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm doing, what a big part of what I'm doing in the therapy room when I'm, when I'm a th- working as a therapist, I'm listening to what the patient is saying at like a verbal explicit level. I'm also listening to the affect of the emotion that's expressed. And I'm also listening to what I'm feeling in response to it. And those three different, you know, this is a, this is a, a, not my model. I didn't invent this, but it's like, you know, those three different pathways are each giving you information about what's going on. And it's not unusual that someone says there's no issue, their tone seems calm, and I'm feeling totally flooded with anxiety. And it's like, Well, so I'm wondering, like, are you feeling anxious, (laughs) you know? And they're like, yeah, I am. I was like, you know, and then, and and then you, you see where that goes. Or they say, you know, they say, you know, they're angry about something, but you listen to the, to it. And it's like, it seems like the driver of the anger is like feeling unheard or feeling powerless or something. And you can sometimes then talk about, you know, that sounds like really disempowering or something. It might be something that a therapist would say. And then, and then they're saying like, yeah, it's really disempowering. And then when they can connect that feeling of being disempowered, it takes some pressure off the anger and it actually like it, the anger isn't quite as, as, as overwhelming because they can talk a little bit about this other feeling that's, that's feeding it. I think of this stuff in my view, like this is the best, most positive reading of what empathy is. But in my view, this is what empathy is. It's like I am listening to emotions, not just to say, feel whatever you feel and I'll be nice and validated even if it's crazy or distorted. Like I don't, that isn't really empathy to me. I, I think of it as like emotion, accurate emotional reflectiveness. You know, so I think there's like, I can, I do hear what you're saying about like a, there's a way that empathy can become like this monstrous and dysfunctional thing. It, like, and I, I think that is like, you, you were like pathological. Well, empathy. radical empathy is a real term that you hear thrown around, Rad, but radical in Ra- front of anything. Ra- radical days. empathy. Yeah. That it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to. And and there's sometimes like an exclusiveness to the empathy, like I'm going to really empathize with this one person at the expense of empathizing with this other person or something like that, or I'm really going to empathize with this side as opposed to this other side. I think it, so I think it can totally get unhealthy and derailed, but if it's done right, I think it can be, it can be a really valuable clinical tool. Well, I imagine this comes up with couples a lot. Do you do couples therapy? 
Yeah, some. It's not my main bread and butter, but I, yeah, I usually see, I'm usually seeing a couple or two. Yeah. And like in your experience or from what you've heard, does it, do you think that men are like discriminated against in, in couples therapy? Like, is there, does there tend to be, I mean, is it, it's probably more likely to be a female clinician. The female patient, the female patient is the one who's dragging them there and the man doesn't want to be there. Yeah. And I think there's definitely like a, there's, there's definitely a whole set of assumptions about gender that probably most clinicians aren't even aware that they have going into it about like what role gender roles should look like, what people should feel about them what needs are valid, what needs aren't valid. You know, somebody who's like a man who's like, I want to, you know, who wants a maybe more traditional male role and wants to be valued for that, that might be, that's, I think, much more likely to be seen as problematic. And there's, there are these weird, one thing that I think is weird, I mean, especially I'm in New York and I think I see it, I wonder about it in New York is, um, where you have two couples or uh, two people in a couple and both of them are kind of sexually and emotionally attracted to like gender. <laughs> so they, they kind of want some role differentiation there. Wait, and what do you mean they're, what do you mean they're emotional? They're attracted to gender. You mean like they're attracted, they're, they're attracted to, to like to, to tradition, maybe like traditional gender. Like, they're, like, they're the opposite, like they want a ma- like yeah they they want the sort of it's not woman, necessarily you want like it has to be it doesn't have to be Mad Men and like right. you know it doesn't have to be like that but there's some but there is like a like yeah when the man like works more and the woman cooks dinner it's like there's yeah. something that's like emotionally gratifying and maybe even erotic about that and that, that I don't think that's just people in New York yes maybe people, people no, no, in no, New no, York no. have a cognitive dissonance about it yeah that's what I was saying right. no no not that they're the only people <laughs> right. who do it but that both people in the couple can like seem like they want that but be unable to admit to themselves that <sighs> they want that that's mm-hmm. what I think I see in New York I, yeah no I definitely I think there's not, it's not the only place where people but there is like so they're almost like trapped in this dysfunctional dynamic that's not gratifying to either of them because they feel morally obligated towards this ideology that they don't even really want. And like, I think like women would feel like if they want that, then that means they're not like a boss bitch. They're not like, you know, a feminist and like they're, you know, they're, you know, not as successful or something, but then the men feel like if they want that, then they're like a patriarch and they're sexist. And, oh my um, gosh. And is this generational? No, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And I, I feel like, so like I'm a, I, I talk about generational divides too much here, but like, I, I feel like around people might, like I'm in my early fifties. So I feel like there's a little bit of that in my cohort, but I feel like I see this more in younger people. Yeah. Um, I think so. They're more, and it's because it, a lot of like education and college and media really set cultural norms. And then you can find somebody where you're like, we're going to actively challenge these norms, but you really need, it requires more drive on both part and more honesty and candor. And I think maybe maturity even on both people's parts to say this, we, we want a, 
you know, equitable, mature, loving relationship, but we want one with gender. And that means that some of these kind of symbolic things are divided up in this particular way. But it's even, it's also just like, there's something, there's something crazy about this task that like couples have to, because the norms are where they are, at least they're established culturally in a particular place for a lot of people, they have to kind of relitigate and renegotiate all of these features in every couple. And it's like this endless source of potential arguments and friction that just, it's just part of being a couple. I don't, I don't know. Like right. you, you either like say, okay, well, I'm not going to get everything I want. And I just have to like deal with it or no, this is something I want to fight about. It's just like, it just sucks. <laughs> yeah. You all, it's pick your battles. Yeah. Pick your battles. But it's like, but then it's crazy that you can have two people wanting something different from the status quo and unable to like admit it to each other. And I think you get this even in therapy where there's therapists who are, uh, they really get some of these cultural issues, but they're shy, you know, to actually communicate that to patients. There's this Whereas, like, um, I think it's probably therapists who are fully on board with social justice ideology are less shy about jumping in with their patients. Yeah. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, like, in terms of the gender thing, I don't know how much this comes up in your own practice, but I'm imagining that it is relevant to the work of the Open Therapy Institute. You know, we constantly have this conversation. Why are so many clinicians on board with gender ideology. So uh, like often the, the, the women that are in my unspeakeasy community, the, the, the ones that are therapists, I get the sense that they, one of the things they're most afraid of is being known around town as uh, the, the therapist that is not going to be gender affirming. Why is it that this movement is is so pronounced why has is it like the people who went into this field just tend to be a certain kind of person like i said before uh, i no I, well i mean maybe maybe that's playing a role but i mean okay i actually have a little little anecdote here when i started this was one of my i guess it was my i won't i won't say what year it is but what, one of my early years in training I had just started and I had a trans patient who had a, who had a kind of atypical kind of trans identity and, um, and also sex addiction. It was like not a great case for an early clinician because it was extremely difficult. Mm. And I was like, I need a supervisor. Like I need, I need somebody to talk to, to get help about how to do this. And nobody knew anyone. <laughs> at all like, at all and this is they in a like, major city i'm assuming this is in this is in new york <laughs> in you know in the couple of years before trump became president mm-hmm. and it was like nobody knew anyone and i was like well what do we do with this and they're like we don't know and so like i took abnormal psych and intro to psychopathology and all these kinds of classes that talk about the dsm and I think in the ones I took, gender dysphoria was not even part of one lecture. Like it was like, it was so not an issue in 2013, 14. Like it was like, and then it, I remember seeing it on TV, you know, seeing like on this show where they're, 
a bunch of celebrities talking, saying that there's a well-researched clinical consensus on this issue that, you know, people need to be able to be trans and use up the other bathroom or whatever. And I was thinking, I haven't been to a single lecture around that. And I remember when, when this started happening, when the like cultural zeitgeist hit, which was very abrupt for the general public. It was just as abrupt in the mental health field in terms of my, what I seen, what I saw where all of a sudden there were, there was this huge demand. This is what it seemed like, again, anecdotal. This is my perception, but it seemed like there was this huge demand for trainings around this issue. And I would see on the listservs of therapists, like we need trainings on this because people didn't have it. So like people, most people in the field knew virtually nothing about this until it was announced through the media that our field had a consensus on it. And, oh, wow. and I, I felt that it was communicated from on high. Everybody needs to agree with this. But the people that were actually doing research on this and that were knowledge about it were few and far between. That's fascinating. And the, the program was really different too. I mean, and I remember a... Uh, this was early in my training and maybe, and this is what I, I didn't actually see this patient. It was a colleague, but she saw a patient who was um, identified as trans. And it was like, they had to be in therapy for a, this was an adult, somebody, you know, late twenties or early thirties had to be in therapy for a year and get a le- letter from both the therapist, a psychologist and a psychiatrist in an evaluation. Oh yeah. No, that's how it used to be, off. but that's gatekeeping. And that was gatekeeping. But that was like, I want to say that was like 2017 or 2018. Mm-hmm. So it in so it was the 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 speed at which the law changed and the practices changed without discourse, and that this consensus was announced with worth most therapists knowing little to nothing about the issue. It, it was and it was and I felt it was very clearly communicated that all of a sudden these weren't issues that were safe to ask questions about. And it was head spinning and it was hard just to even get your mind around. You know, I remember somebody saying at at one meeting I was in like, well, what's the rationale for not letting somebody, you know, transition? Why, you know, what's the rationale for that? And, um, and nobody had a response, you know, because it's like, we hadn't thought about it at all. (laughs) We like, it was not a, it wasn't as compare this to like other debates in the field, like, psychoanalysis versus CBT or like social versus personality or genes versus environment. There are these controversies in psychology that are these decades and decades long debates with like lots of researchers on both sides, thousands and thousands of studies and papers, and they, and they're still unresolved. And then you see this issue where it's just rolled out in, you know, a blink of an eye that now there's a consensus and you can't ask questions. And there were, there was never a a period of robust debate. I've said this many times. I think this is, a lot of this is due to being so haunted by the gay rights movement and so much malpractice and really, frankly, cruel treatment on the parts of therapists and clinicians and counselors, gay people um, back in the day and not too long ago, um, that there's a just an absolute terror of repeating that, but like it's a totally different phenomenon, especially now with you know this new population 
so there's really nothing that happened. There's like, there wasn't one article or some like, you know, 60 minutes special that changed everything. Like what was the source? Was it, was it Tumblr? I mean, this is like, I, I just constantly well, I, rack I, my I, mind over this. I think it's activists. I mean, they, they got a ton of money. Some of the LGBT organizations just got a ton of money and they have an enormous, they got an enormous amount of influence very quickly. And there was, and, and their counterparts, which had been like, I think mostly conservative Christian groups, like kind of all agreed around the same time that they weren't going to fight on these issues. Most of them agreed mm. they weren't going to fight on these issues at the same time. So there was just like, all of a sudden there was like tons of money and influence on one side and like nothing on the other side. Yeah. But the, the, even basic questions, like I, I'll tell you like something that like, I mean, I'm sure I bet it's come up on your podcast, but like, you know, like how you can't change your genitals and like get all the surgery to become, you know, to, 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 to appear like the other sex without state of the art technology. And that didn't exist that long ago. And how can you be born in a way that requires state-of-the-art technology in order to exist. And like, th- th- it's interesting how the movement, like, like they kind of avoid language about trans identity being genetic because as soon as you think about genes, you, you think about chromosomes. And so there's this, there's this other argument that it's almost like it, it, it's this theological thing where you, you you have a soul and your soul has a gender. Right. And God made a mistake in terms of putting the soul in the wrong body. And it, it, there's this kind of like, there's this, it, it does have this like a lot of theological aspects to it that don't really fit with scientific worldviews but it's just like but there are there are as as you know but there are just dozens of like questions about what this means about what it what this is and how, why it works the way that it does i mean yeah but it's just like i i never these debates at least in the in the mental health field i think essentially never happened yeah So, but like, there are so many clinicians who are just primarily activists and I'm wondering, like, are there certain institutions or are there certain training? Like, is there a, a, do they get trained this way? I mean, we talk about this often here in terms of like teachers and ed schools, like the people who are now tending to become teachers, public school teachers, it, it tends to be a certain kind of person now. Um, I mean, you could just like take a snapshot of a classroom of people um, in an ed school and, you know, they're not like ladies wearing pearls. Uh, They are, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rainbow hair, not, not, not exclusively or anything, but a lot of it. It, it, Do, is that the kind of population that's going into therapy as well? Becoming therapists? Uh, I don't, I don't think I knew anybody who had rainbow hair, Uh, but you know, it's hard to distinguish what most people believe versus what most people are pretending to agree with. And I don't know the answer to that. It's like, it's an interesting thing how like with, you're talking about ed schools, it's like you get 
you control the diversity apparatus at the ed school, and then you have a say over hiring, and then you push the faculty of the ed school to be all your ideology, and then you get the students to be all your ideology, and then you get the teachers. Like, there's a way that they've, like, hacked into these, like, hierarchical structures to, like, you know, coerce people from from top down into... And and I you do see that in terms of, like, the professional organizations and clinical psychology tend to be a lot more activisty, a lot more one-sided. And they do the accreditation of the of the academic programs, like the PhD programs need to be accredited by the APA. And they do a lot of the continuing ed trainings. And so there's a way that it gets kind of top-down imposed on people. Yeah. I want to ask you too, we're talking about patient populations, people who really are, whose needs are not being addressed or even studied. You know, it's it's obviously people outside of cities. I mean, I'm thinking of people in rural populations. You've got working class, lower class, white people, all kinds of people. I don't even think this is racial, actually. So let me take that back. I mean, you've got people in rural areas who have a lot of problems. They've got relationship problems like everybody else and professional problems and substance problems and problems with their kids and everything. Like, how are they supposed to find a therapist? I, I'm assuming that they're going to go into like a local mental health center or there's maybe like a few therapists in town. I think often they, they call them counselors. I thought that was very interesting. I, I moved to the Midwest in the early 2000s from New York City and you know everyone was in therapy in New York and suddenly you'd go to counseling yeah. <laughs> instead of going to therapy. It was just the, what it's called. What is it like for for people in in a more in a more rural community in terms of their relationship with the clinical setting at all? Yeah, I think it's it's much harder to to find providers. I mean, there's telehealth now, so that's more normal that you can get a therapist on Zoom even if you live in a remote location. There are licensing issues. Psychologists have something there's an organization called SciPact where if you're licensed in one SIPACT state, you can practice in any of them. And that's like about 30 or 40 states. It's like a ton of states. And uh, so uh, psychologists increasingly can practice in most states, but it's, uh, I think access is absolutely limited. And the quality and the, the quality of the training of the providers in rural areas tends to be much lower. So the, it's, there are good therapists that do work in a, in a lot of areas, but uh, they tend to have less uh, less extensive training. And what do you think about outfits like BetterHelp, for instance? BetterHelp, not a sponsor of this podcast uh, at the moment. Yeah, they, yeah. they sponsor all the podcasts, but so we're allowed to, to talk about them. I, what, do you, what do you make of that? They, um, I they like they <laughs> i should know this but they, what they do is uh basically they'll pair you with a zoom therapist yeah. is that their service yeah yeah um my my guess it's is an app that, i mean i think it's actually not even zoom like you can chat with them you can text with them it's a, it's an app okay see that that i don't like that i don't like because i think that like you know i there even zoom i don't love I think there's a lot happening in an in-person interaction that like a lot of therapy is nonverbal. Like when you, there's a, there's a difference between talking into the ether and having 
your feelings connect to somebody else. And sometimes talking with somebody and having them get it, you actually feel like you're, you're processing and you, you get some nurturance from the interaction with another person that's really meaningful. And I think even that is harder on Zoom or sometimes on voice calls. On text, I just, I don't see it happening at all. Use a lot of emojis. A lot of emojis and then it's misattuned and it's weird. And the idea that you can do it on demand doesn't seem good. I mean, so I don't, I don't, I don't, that doesn't seem like, uh, and I, I would bet that, you know, it just the economics of it makes you think that they would get the least skilled people because if you could do something else as a therapist, you probably would. So I don't know. I can't think off the top of my head why a really talented therapist would work for better help. Well, I always feel like they maybe they're very young or they're like in training. I, I don't know if you they're probably like a master's trained. level, a master's yeah. level clinician who doesn't have another option. Huh. That's okay. that's all I can think of. I mean, maybe th- that's that's brutal. So it might be missing something important, and uh, but that's that's who I guess it would be on a platform that's probably not the most conducive to therapy to begin with. Is it hard to get a job though if you are in mental health profession? Because all we hear about is there's just lack of mental health care. And I mean, like, how hard is it to get a job? Um, I mean, it depends on like, I mean, it's not hard for a licensed clinical psychologist. It's not hard for a psychiatrist. Somebody who got a master's in family therapy and doesn't have any clinical experience, you know, or I, th- I think it, d- it depends on, it depends on the, on the person, um, or on the, on the context. But, um, yeah, I think, and, and they need hours before they can get licensed. And, uh, I, I, I don't, it's, I know, I think there are, there are people who have certain degrees where it's, it's hard to, um, where better help is their best option. Mm-hmm. Do you think that most therapists go into this profession because they want to help people? Why do people go into it? Um, you'd, you'd, you'd hope so. Um, yeah, I think so. It's immensely, as somebody, if I feel like a patient of mine makes significant growth and progress and feels better and is improving, and that, that's an incredibly gratifying thing. That that really is a huge perk of the field. So I I think that's really it. I bet most. I mean, I think for most people, there's probably a variety of like individual factors. Maybe like one of them. I think Nancy McWilliams, who's a very famous psychoanalyst, wrote about like uh, therapists having intimacy issues, like um, craving certain types of intimacy. Um, oh. and, uh, and, and there's definitely something you definitely have to enjoy, uh, being around a lot of emotion. Um, mm. I think that's a good, like if you have that trait of like, it, like there are people who really like emotion and people who really don't, <laughs> if you don't, it's not a great job for you. I think there's also issues about wanting to hear what people are thinking and know people in a particular way. Um, 
So I think there are people who maybe want closeness, want emotion, want, there can be, you know, this isn't the most flattering towards therapists, but there can be a kind of voyeuristic gratification that therapists get that they like, you know, which I think is a universal thing on some level that people like hearing stories and interesting stories. But, you know, so I think there's all different types of like personality factors that might lead someone to want to become a therapist. I, I hope helping people is one of them. But do you think that therapists are more likely to have mental health issues themselves? Um, I think that if you haven't ever had any mental health issues and you've never been in therapy, I don't think you'd be a very good therapist. You know, I, I think having the experience of having suffered and been through therapy and seen what works firsthand is invaluable as a therapist. So you, I, I kind of am skeptical of like, there are some therapists who have never been in therapy themselves. And that is like you ha- unbelievable to me. You have to go to therapy to be a therapist though, right? Yourself, no. don't you? You don't? No. I, I mean, well, no. to be an analyst, really? I, to be to an be analyst, you have to be an analysis, right? Though, right? That's right. To be a psychoanalyst. Okay. But that's not, that's a totally different degree and process than being a therapist. And therapists do not have to go to therapy ever. Wow. So it's, it's, which is like, which is, which is crazy. Uh, there are reasons why, you know, they decided that it was problematic for programs to force trainees to go to therapy. But I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. The, the, the best therapists would be people who have like actually been through some serious shit. This is my take. Been through some serious shit, seen therapy working and not working and found something that really worked for themselves and then use that to help their patients. I think that's like a great background to have as a therapist. I think there are therapists who go into the field hoping that they're going to find the thing that helps them and maybe they don't or maybe they overgeneralize or things like that. But um, Hmm. yeah. Interesting. Are more people going to therapy now or or, or less? I I can't quite tell. I think it's more. There's definitely data somewhere on it. Okay. I would guess more. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've noticed this uh, life coach phenomenon that like a lot of people are sort of hiring coaches and taking this very kind of practical approach to sort of macro problem solving in their lives. And uh, I, I just, it's, it's seems like it's this strange alternative to therapy. Not strange, but it's just something I've noticed over the last couple of years. It's just uh, the life coaching world is just the Wild West. I mean, there's no regulation of what yeah. that term means. So well, I think you have got... to be in your 20s to be a life coach. So far, <laughs> I can, I can right. tell. The, the less life experience you have, uh, the better coach you <laughs> are, evidently. But it's, 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 you know, there's no requirements around training or education for the title. So I think it's, I think it's zero, but it's like, so yeah. it's just, uh, so it's just the wild west. And I'm, I'm sure there's just a huge gamut of what people are doing under that title. Yeah. 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 No, it's, uh, that, that'll be a different conversation. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you for speaking with me. Um, the Open Therapy Institute. Congratulations on starting that. It sounds extremely timely. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Hopefully we'll talk again sometime. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Okay. Bye. 
That was my conversation with Dr. Andrew Hartz. He is a practicing clinical psychologist in New York and the founder of the Open Therapy Institute. Once again, if you are not yet a paying subscriber to this podcast Substack page, megandom.substack.com, you should become one now for many reasons, among them that for founding members, I will be hosting a Zoom hangout in a few weeks, Sunday, October 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. You can ask me all kinds of things. We get together, we talk about the various episodes, gossip about the guests. It's a lot of fun. Also, a little unspeakeasy news. I will probably in the next week or so announce the first three retreats of 2024. We're going to do six in total all over the country. And I'm going to tell you about the first three that will happen in the early and mid spring of next year. So listen up for that or go to theunspeakeasy.com and get on the mailing list. You can get some problematic merch while you're at it. Hats, t-shirts, all kinds of things. Let your problematic flag fly. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 